Science and Wisdom Live is a project of Jamyang London Buddhist Center, a non-profit organization. Please consider supporting us with a donation to help us keep our podcasts and videos free and ad-free. To support us now, please visit our website at scienceandwisdomlive.com. episode is an excerpt of one of our Science and Wisdom Dialogues. To listen to the full recording, please follow the link in the podcast description. My, my opinion, for what it's worth, yeah. is that it's clear there's an intimate dependence of consciousness on the brain. And this mm-hmm. goes, you know, this is amply demonstrated by, by medicine, by science. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you change the brain, you change your conscious experience. Uh, so that, there's a dependency in that, in that direction. Um, I am not very comfortable with the extremes of this position. So one extreme might be that that consciousness is entirely a separate realm that interacts somehow with the physical realm of the brain, uh, perhaps through the pineal gland, as Descartes suggested, or perhaps in some other way. But this is the, the dualistic perspective. And it's got a lot of intuitive appeal for many because it seems as though consciousness is a kind of separate thing from the, from the world of physical stuff but it doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny. It's very hard to, to figure out how it, how it would work. And the idea that consciousness is a side effect, that it's epiphenomenal, that it doesn't matter, just goes against the whole of evolutionary biology. And it goes against common sense too. Our, our conscious experiences are not arbitrary. You know, the way we perceive the self and the world can be understood in terms of being functionally useful for the organism. And this can be true without having to say that conscious experiences somehow cause things to happen in the brain which is, again is a kind of dualism through the back door mm-hmm. it, it, it could be that you know our brains have evolved to generate conscious experiences um, because this is a very efficient way for them to organize uh, behavior and we we this is just one way for the brains to integrate lots of information from from the world that in a, in a format that's very unified and geared towards adaptive actions geared towards fulfilling our, our behavioral goals to doing what we mm-hmm. want um, that all makes sense to me without having to say that consciousness itself sort of comes in and causes the neuron to fire that otherwise wouldn't fire mm-hmm. our experiences are the sort of the subjective rather that yeah the yeah the phenomenological flip side of that kind of functional organization of the brain all this is to say that that i'm a pragmatic materialist. You know, I think mm-hmm. that conscious experiences depends on the physical brain in some way. Uh, it's a question how, you know, in what way that is. I think it's very difficult to come up with an exact answer to that. But I think by taking the perspective of experiences depending on the brain, it's the most useful way to try and understand how consciousness is expressed in, in humans and other animals. You know, this, this dualistic thinking, I think, is it was rooted in an earlier, you know, fog of just grasping at what how things might really exist. I, talking to Carlo Rovelli and reading his books, you know, like Helgoland, I think was very illuminating to me because he, you know, he says matter really isn't what we think it is. You know, like this, this, this primary dualism of thinking there's even a solid matter 
when you look at it from the quantum perspective, without being airy fairy or woo woo at all, it's just all there is is the transfer of information. There's the receiving and the sending of information, but there's not necessarily a sender or a receiver. Like it's it's the action. The he calls it relationality, right? And when you think of it that way, I found it was it was much less hand wavy because um, it's more like they're the same thing. It's that matter isn't as solid as we think it is. And consciousness is not an airy fairy mystical realm that will never access that actually maybe there's something else right in between that encompasses both. I think that's right. I, I felt the same way on reading Carla Valley's book, Calculand, yeah. which I thought was yeah. brilliant. Actually, I yeah, really yeah, enjoyed I it. And I've that. spoken to him as well since then. And um, yeah, you're right that when people pour scorn on materialism and say that you know that consciousness how, how could consciousness ever be explained by physical stuff it's often on the basis of a rather impoverished view of what physical stuff actually is as if mm -hmm. it is just billiard balls bouncing around in the void and what carlo reminds us is that the material world is pretty mysterious still it's certainly more than billiard balls colliding in the dark uh, there's quantum mechanics and there is no agreed interpretation of quantum mechanics. Carlo's relational interpretation, I think, is beautiful, you know, that, that things exist in relation to other things yeah. rather than as intrinsic things that then interact with other intrinsic things. Yeah. But there are other ones too. It may not be that, that may not be the one that may be something else altogether. Uh, and I think it's it's not that, ah, now we have the secret of consciousness, but it's just sort of a healthy reminder that the resources of materialist explanation are deeper and richer than we might otherwise suppose. There's been a lot of, right, I mean, from when I first started out on this path about 30, 32 years ago, there's been a lot written about quantum mechanics and consciousness. And I think a lot of it has not been very helpful because it's of the sort that you know, consciousness is mysterious and quantum mechanics is mysterious, so they must be related. Um, I don't think that's very helpful. No specific theory about consciousness depending on this or that quantum process has, I think, really stood up. It's not to say it won't in the future, but it is it, quantum mechanics just reminds us that matter is complicated and may do many things. You mentioned the self a few different times there, and you've talked about the self not as a thing that does perceiving, but as a perception itself can you can you talk more about that you know i'm a i'm a buddhist i'm i'm a practicing tibetan buddhist and you know in the buddhist worldview you see this illusion of a separate self as this fundamental obstacle <laughs> to to happiness and to seeing reality clearly so i was quite struck with this your thought that seems very coherent with the buddhist view that the self isn't uh, a thing but it's a perception itself would would you mind unpacking that from your own you know perspective and research I think he just did it very nicely, and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of parallels between Buddhist conceptions of the illusion of the self and yeah. what I've been saying, but what a lot of other people in neuroscience are saying as well. Mm -hmm. An illusion has a specific meaning here, right? That that it's a form of perception that is different in some systematic way from what actually is the case. So it's not mm -hmm. like a hallucination, which might be something that that doesn't exist. Um, in, my, in the book and in my work, I talk about perception as a controlled hallucination rather than a hallucination of something that, that's not there. I think that works. That works too. Uh, when it comes to the to the self, 
from one perspective, and it may just be this very naive non-Buddhist Western cultural perspective, it's, it seems intuitive to think of the self as the thing that does the perceiving, as if there's a, an essence of me within my head that's receiving all the information about the world through the eyes, ears, nose, wherever, and is the beneficiary of all this information, all the work the brain is doing to interpret it and form perceptions, and the self kind of gets that information and makes a memory and decides what to do next and so on. But this doesn't seem to be what's going on. And the way I prefer to think of it is that there's a single underlying principle beneath our perceptions of things in the world and the perceptions that collectively form the self. And this requires unpacking, as we've already mm. done a bit. Well, what, is, what does it mean to experience being a self? And there are many different kinds of experiences, the body, the emotion, mood, first-person perspective, memories over time, volition, agency, free will, all sorts of things. Instead of thinking of those as little mini essences of me, you can think of them as forms of perception, especially mm -hmm. the, the body is an easy example. You know, the experience of what in the world is my body well, that's a perception. That's a, that, and, and it's, we know it's something that shouldn't be taken for granted because it can be manipulated both in, in the lab and is manipulated in many illnesses and diseases. You know, people with amputations experience phantom limbs. Other people experience existing limbs that they have as not belonging to them. There are all these mm -hmm. strange uh, alterations in bodily experience, and they're best understood as unusual forms of perception of the body, of the, of the self. So I think that the term illusion is quite appropriate here because you know, there, there is an organism that is you and that, that is me. You know, there's a thing in the world, a collection of, of wetware and muscle and tissue mm -hmm. that defines each of us. Um, and the perception of being a self is related to that in all sorts of useful ways but there is no sort of independently existing essence of me or you in, in the way it might naively appear. So the self is a rolling process constructed from different ways of perceiving the body and the mind and other people. Yeah. There's a really fascinating thing I think here, which gets back to one thing you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is the interdependence on others. Mm -hmm. And a, a large part of what it is to be a human self is how we perceive ourselves refracted through the minds of others. And this can be in a very literal way. I have a pretty bad autobiographical memory. So often I rely on my friends who've known me for years to remind me what happens to me at various times in my life. And that those memories are a part of my experience of being me, but they, they entirely depend on the minds of others. And I think in a more systematic way, what it feels like to be any of us is really strongly dependent on what we think other people think about us, whether we realize it or not. And that means mm -hmm. to me anyway, that we are literally constituted as people in part by the minds of those around us. Yeah. You know, this is one of the great questions of consciousness because um, you can obviously make a computer that spits out the word red when you point it at something red, but when we have the experience of red, or you know the great the or the really passionate experience of chocolate or of love and, and so on. Um, those kind of experiences transcend the the label, 
that even that I'd say an artificial intelligence might put on that thing. That's why we say AIs, you know, maybe aren't conscious because they're just spitting out an answer. But what is that difference? Like why, what are, and we use this word qualia typically to refer to these experiences, the subjective, I hate that word subjective now that you've pointed out its problem, but the, the, the awareness of something that goes beyond just labeling uh, an experience to actually like feeling it, experiencing it as something whole. Uh, this is the big question, right? Uh, there's, we have a strong intuition that there are some processes, some systems that are just not sufficient to generate any kind of experience. So programming computer to say red when it, you point its camera at a red bus, that doesn't give us the sense that there is therefore an experience of redness happening for that computer. But if we look at a red bus, that there is, and that's, that's the starting point of there being anything to explain about consciousness. We have these experiences um, and we, we don't, you know, there is something going on and therefore there's a challenge in explaining it. The, the, the label, so I'm in this sense, I'm what philosophers might call a phenomenal realist. So you know, I believe that experiences happen and we're not mistaken about the fact that we have conscious experiences. Uh, but the word qualia, qualia is problematic i mean it's it's been a bit of a philosophical football in in the field for a, for a very long time in one sense it's perfectly legitimate because it just points to this phenomenal realism just this this, this difference between mm -hmm. a computer that spits out red and the experience of redness if you or i look at a red thing and say red uh, but in another sense the word takes on i think some additional and more challenging connotations. So the idea of, of, of a sort of mental stuff, you know, what is, what is this stuff of experience? Where is it? How does it relate to it? You begin to think more in terms of a, of a again, sort of backdoor dualism. How does this qualia relate to, to brain activity? Um, it imbues it with a kind of substance of some form that, that then complicates the problem. So I don't know, in all honesty, how to address that problem. But I do know you can, you can sidestep it a little bit. And it may seem like a bit of a cheat, but the approach that, that I follow and advocate uh, in the book and my work is instead of trying to explain why and how this qualia stuff could arise, emerge or exist, accept that experiences are real so take a phenomenal realist perspective describe their properties like what is it about redness that makes it different from blueness or greenness or emotion or smell or memory or agency you know, these experiences are different characters can we try and understand why and how these experiences have these different characters can we explain properties of these experiences in terms of underlying mechanisms like what kind of perceptual prediction in the brain would map in an understandable explanatory way to a particular kind of conscious experience now pretty much all theories in consciousness science try to do this in one way or another they all try to account for why different experiences are the way they are and, and how they relate to other ones and i think that's a really powerful prospect the hope is that by, by doing that, you end up 
dissolving a little bit of the, the mystery around qualia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an argument I try to make in the book that in the science of consciousness, as in science in general, once you can explain why a phenomenon is one way and not another way, predicts when it will happen and then maybe control its appearance or intervene in the brain and a particular experience happens that you predict to happen. Well, then you've kind of done the job that scientific explanations typically do. You don't always have to explain why and how the phenomenon is there in the first place. And indeed, it's not that you just, that hangs on as an inconvenient mystery. Often the mystery just goes away. So here there's a historical parallel with, with life. For a long time, biologists were worried about how life could be a property of physics and chemistry, of mere mechanism. It seemed almost conceptually impossible that it could be, which drove the philosophy of vitalism, the idea that there was some special source, some essence, some elan vital. But biology didn't figure out life by looking for this elan vital and finding it. But importantly, it didn't do the opposite. It didn't say, oh, well, you know, life doesn't exist, actually. Um, We're mistaken about life being special. No, biology progressed by identifying the different properties of living systems, like homeostasis and metabolism, reproduction and things, and explaining those. And it turns out that once you've done that, then even the question about how does life happen doesn't have the sense of mystery and the sense of mystery about it is is gone even though we still haven't fully explained everything there is to explain about life so will this be the case for consciousness it's too early to say you can't Mm. leap ahead you can't put descartes before the horse in this way but you can i think make a reasonable bet that this is a very productive road to follow Uh, instead of attacking this hard problem in david chalmers vocabulary head on Mm. Let's take a divide and conquer approach. Let's accept that conscious experiences are real. Let's list list their properties. Take a branch of philosophy called phenomenology more seriously, which Mm -hmm. tries to actually, instead of just saying consciousness is a, you know, it's experience, it's one big thing. No, it's a a very complex phenomenon. It has many different dimensions. We've barely scratched the surface in this conversation. But philosophy, again, goes a lot deeper, as do many Western traditions of phenomenological philosophy. Mm. let's figure out what it is we're trying to explain in a more granular way and then see what aspects of phenomenology we can explain by the different theories that we have that may make testable predictions and then let's just keep an eye on this hard problem in the distance and see whether it's still there or whether it's in fact starting to crumble and dissolve there's certainly one current of of thinking that that you hear sometimes which is that a scientific explanation of consciousness is somehow spiritually dangerous if if -hmm. consciousness turns out to be explicable we're going to lose something very precious we're going to lose something very special to us something that sets us apart and makes us and makes us who we are um and the sense of awe might might be damaged or abolished and I suspect the opposite will be the case. And this is not new. This happens in science all the time. And we just think about the James Webb telescope taking its first images now. How much more wonderful is that than the idea that the Earth is at the centre of the universe and there are you know, seven or eight spheres rotating around it? The universe as it actually 
is beginning to be revealed to us, even through the limited ways that we still have. I mean, even the James Webb, how amazing as it is, is not giving us the full picture. Mm-hmm. But the universe that's open to us now is so much richer and awesome than human imagination considered beforehand. The same goes yeah. for life in all its variety. And I see absolutely no reason why the same won't apply to consciousness too. It becomes more impressive, more wondrous. And also, I think we, we will value it more because we also realize how precarious it is. We take ourselves less for granted. Mm-hmm. And that is a value that extends beyond contemplation of the universe to to our everyday life and how we go about living in the day-to-day.